to the Forerunners Podcast. You're listening to part two of our interview with Jason Hallenbeck. Buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride. We're back, guys. It's been a week. Welcome. Hey, Jason. <laughs> yeah, really short week. <laughs> yeah, short, short week for us, long week for you. It's like Inception, like yep. a dream within a dream. <laughs> so... How many ultras have you run, man? Can you even count? Uh, so I actually, I had to go back and count when you, when you sent this to me because yeah. I had to think about, I think I'm at six or seven, something like that. Okay. Of and official, cl- of official ultramarathon. Okay. Cause yeah, you have run some stuff on your own. Too. Yeah. Um, what was your first one? So kind of to tack on to last week's episode that, that, um, that, that run I did down in Georgia. The first, the next race that I could really run that was nearby was either Long Creek 60K or Single Track Maniac 50K that were nearby. And the 60K, the extra 10K kind of scared me a little bit. So I signed up for the 50K, which is not far from here. That's now. Freedom Park, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's it's Dude. really nice. So you ran part of the course. Dude, like a 50K <laughs> at Freedom Park where there is no flat land? Like I can't even remember a flat ground. <laughs> like, man, that'd be brutal. So this 50K, I didn't exactly train for. So oh. that that 13 miler that I ran, that was my long run before the 50K. Because <laughs> right after that, that, right that run, that was in you know late October. I got home early November. I'm like, it's the holidays. It's time to take time off. And it, yeah, I made that. Yeah. This episode is going to be an episode of mistakes made and lessons learned the hard way. <laughs> Dude, so you went from, you skipped a 5K, went to a half, and then skipped everything else and went to an ultra. Yeah. I mean, literally skipped everything else because you didn't even do a yeah, longer I, run in the 13. Yeah, the 50K was the first official race or event I had run since high school. <laughs> and the longest I'd run up to that was 13.1. On Freedom Park Yeah, on Freedom Trail. Park. So, a little bit about how this race went. <laughs> I'm still in the mental mindset of, like, the speed skating world, right? And and no, nobody's familiar about the speed skating world, so let me explain. It is hyper-competitive. Like, it's perfectly normal for people to throw fists, get in fights. Like, hyper-competitive. Money's on the line. Like, you know, people get... It's it's super like raging. Dude, what is it about skates and violence, dude? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> dirty roller derby. Yep, exactly. Yeah, hockey. hockey. <laughs> so I, I I'm still living in that mindset a little bit because I haven't experienced anything since then, and I'm about to have a wake up call with ultra running because so I'm I'm sitting in my car by myself like getting all amped up for this race. Like, yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna we're, we're gonna fight this out. And I step up to the line with everybody else and everybody's just like joking around and having a good time. And there's no like sense of who's like the elite runners and who's the non-elite runners. We're all just in this giant gaggle of people. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, my, my guards are getting lowered a little bit. And the, the race director is, you know, they're doing their pre-race thing. Like we're all here to have fun. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's just a, that's just a ploy for the other people. Us elite runners, we're going to throw down and we're going to fight. And then it starts pouring. Like, I mean, torrential downpour pouring, and this is a trail race, which means in the normal world, in the speed skating world, this is like, oh, the race is ruined. Everybody's disappointed. 
And ultra runners are like, oh, this is going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> they were throwing jokes and having like, this just like made everything twice as much fun apparently. And I'm like, I, I think I found my people. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a polar, that's polar opposites because if you're saying the speed skating is hyper comp- competitive, ultra runners are like not competitive at all. They're just supportive of each other. They'll oh, help yeah. each other try to win. Oh, yeah. like they'll they'll be like, "Oh, you might win. Let me help you." Yeah. All right. So <laughs> so we get into this race, right? We we go off the front. We have a we have a front group, which is you know really tight knit group, and we're throwing down some nice quick miles. And uh, me and a couple of guys break off the back a little bit, and I realize that we're just sitting there having a conversation five miles into this race. We're just talking about whatever. Like, what are you doing next week, man? Oh, yeah. How do you like that new bike? Like, like that's just what we're out here doing in this race. And it just, like, threw me. Because in speed skating, you're trying to, like, play mental games with each other. And you're trying to counterattack and attack and all these, like, you know, you know huge, like, race um, strategies and all this other stuff. And these guys are just out here, like, having a con- – and we're not, like, in the back. Like, we're sitting in – we're fighting for – third place right now <laughs> yeah. there's a podium spot on the line i don't I, i'm confused by this and at this point like my guard is just completely dropped and we get a couple miles in and there's like an out and back section where we hit a road and and i take off trying to chase after the the top three front runners so i'm sitting in like fourth place and i get 20 miles into this thing and i'm still feeling pretty good which is surprising because i'm seven miles past what i've ever run before in history so I get to the top of this hill and I still remember this to this day. I like trip over a rock or something. It was one of those, like you, you have to quick, like flinch to catch yourself. Mm-hmm. And I just feel everything waist down, just like a lock up. Mm. <laughs> like just it's snap locked up. And I'm just like, Oh, Oh God, I'm in a lot of pain. <laughs> I went from feeling great to just being in a ton of pain. And my, my, and I'm just thinking, I still have 11 miles of this thing to go. This is, this is not going to go well. And I'm spent the next 11 miles basically limping my way through the rest of this race. And the thing that stuck out by far the most was that every person who passed me, every single one stopped, slowed down, asked if I needed anything, asked if they could get me anything, asked if they could help, asked if I was okay. And it was, it took me urging them to, no, leave, keep going, keep going. You've got this for them to leave me there yeah. and keep moving. And I was like, this is an, this is what I've been looking for. Like, this is, it's, it's not about the race. It's not about it. We're just out here trying to push ourselves as far as we can to climb this like metaphorical mountain that we have. And that night I signed up for a 50 miler and I had my eye on a hundred miler. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So what are some other notable races that you, you've run with you? Only done six official ones. What what yeah. what were those? So uh, after the OSSCI 50 miler, I ran. Or sorry, after after the single track mania 50k, I ran the OSSCI 50 miler, which is the 6 p.m. start. So you're running 50 miles through the night, which is a, a really cool concept. I love, and that's um, that's up at Prince William Park, which is it's a really nice event. And then uh, I ran Grindstone 100. So uh, that's a, a 6 p.m. start. That's out near the West Virginia, Virginia border. And that's a true mountain hundred miler. 
Well, well, it's popular, right? Yeah, it's well, it's. How, can you just sign up for it, or do you have to win a win a spot in no, it? No, it's it's you can just sign up for it. It's um, it it's probably the biggest mountain, uh, race on the East Coast in size because I think they have like three hundred people run that race. Yeah, it's huge, and one of the biggest reasons is it's one of the few qualifiers for, uh, Hard Rock, which is a, a huge like popular. Yeah. Mountain Ultra. That's what I'm confusing that with, yep. I think. So. Yeah, so Hard Rock, you have to run a qualifier to race. I think Grindstone, I think they say you have to finish like a 50-miler or something, which you're going to run Grindstone, which has like 20,000 feet of elevation gain. It's all technical. It's in October in the West Virginia border, so it's usually cold or hot or both. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And then I, I've run... Um, the Wild Oak Trail, which I know we'll talk about. Um, Heart of the South, which is probably the best story I've ever had, race. And I've done a whole bunch of uh, a 24-hour race, which I DNF'd. A um, last man standing race, which I kind of DNF'd. Can you really DNF a last man yeah, standing race? Yeah, that's the thing. You, you really can't DNF. <laughs> Same thing with 24-hour race. You finish one lap, you're a finisher. <laughs> That's so crazy. I have these like uh, yeah on my on my so you uh, never technically DNF yeah dude. yeah once you finish the first lap you're not going to DNF you just have a really bad distance <laughs> on your record <laughs> shining there yeah that's funny so um, let's talk about some of the races uh, one of your proudest races was I think it's not your most recent one but it it was within the last uh, within the last year was the Wild Oak Trail yeah. Um, Let's talk about a little bit what that race is and how it went for you, dude. Yeah, so, spoiler alert, uh, Wild Oak Trail was the first race I won. So it's, it's got a, a big place in my heart. Um, a little bit of, uh, of explanation about the Wild Oak Trail because it's, it takes a lot of explaining to, to kind of describe how horrendous this race is. And let, let me also preface, ultra running for the most part are these really nice flat beautiful like events where people are super supportive and i just can't do those <laughs> i have to make myself as, as miserable as humanly possible <laughs> and there's so there's like a little five percent you know bubble in the ultra running world where it's just these races are for masochists if you ever watch um if, if you watch any ultra running documentary um you know laz's uh race out in tennessee um is by far one of the one of the greatest like ultra marathons that are out there um and that kind of inspired the wild oak trail for me because john kelly who's the last person to ever finish that race the barclays yeah the barclay the barclay marathon yeah Yeah. sorry the barclay marathon john kelly's the last person to ever finish the barclay marathons he used the wild oak trail as a tune-up race Okay. Yeah, so that's how it got onto my radar. The Wild Oak Trail, it's four loops, similar to the Barclays, five. Uh, it's a 28-mile loop, and they call it 100 miles, but it's actually, you do the math, it's 112. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Each loop has somewhere around 8,000 feet of elevation gain, which nobody really knows because you can't, you know. What state is it in? It's in Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um so you can just Google the Wild Oak Trail and it'll take you right to the trailhead. And unlike most ultra marathons, they don't mark the course. You just have to know the trail. 
Uh, it's held in February, which this is another race right on that West Virginia border. So you can experience temperatures down into the single digits. It snows almost every single year or freezing rain, whichever one is worse. <laughs> oh, gosh. And um, so the elevation gain, 8,000 feet, if you over four laps, that's it's somewhere around 30,000 feet. So if you imagine going from sea level to the top of Mount Everest, back down, and then running a hilly marathon. <laughs> Gosh. That's, this is the race. Uh, and before the race, when you're doing your research, look at 2019, they hold the race twice a year. They have the regular, the Wild Oak Trail, or TWAT as they call it, and then they have Hot TWAT, which is hosted in October, TWOT. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying derogatory. Like, I don't know if I should do those out or what. <laughs> so the hot version, and so they hosted twice a year. In 2019, nobody finished. Yeah. Not a single finisher in the entirety of 2019. And going up to the race, um, I got to enjoy some people had decided they were going to try and do a 200-mile version of the race. So there were a handful of guys who were very accomplished ultra runners who were like, we're going to do 200 miles of this. And two days before the race started, I got to watch them start, and they were supposed to finish with us. Right, So they had four days to run. We have two days to run. So the idea was that we were actually going to share the trail together, which would have been super cool. Problem is every single person dropped out before they reached mile 67. So every person dropped out in the middle of the night because the third loop is a night loop and temperatures dropped down in the single digits and people just couldn't handle it. Yeah. They just quit. And these are guys who have raced Tour de Jean and other, you know, 200 milers out West. They couldn't make it 67 miles. And I am scared <laughs> beyond belief of this race at this point. Nobody's finished it. People can't even come close. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I wake up. And so I, I go out there. I camp out the night before. Um, and we're all just hanging out before the race, me and, me and a bunch of other guys. And one guy has the gall to say, oh, it's going to be perfect weather for the race this year. And me being superstitious. I'm a hockey guy. I'm superstitious. I'm just like burying my, my head in my hands like, you can't say that. You can't say that. The, first, the the race director gives us a little spiel, like, watch out for bears and rattlesnakes and mountain lions because they will kill you. Uh, if you don't know okay. the trail, don't start because we're not going to go out and search for you. Oh, yeah, okay. this is, you, will, you can genuinely die on this race. Wow. That's the general premise behind uh, the race director's pre-racing. Oh, my gosh. Which is great. Yeah. So, you, so we go up the first climb. And the first climb is a seven-mile climb up. Um, big bald knob which i think is like the sixth or seventh highest point in the east coast and about three quarters of the way up to climb you just start seeing white stuff on the ground and you're thinking oh no and you get to the top and it's just snowing and i'm just sitting there thinking back at that guy it's like oh it's gonna be perfect weather this year yay i hate you right now. <laughs> it snowed at the top of the mountains through the entire race and then as the night came the snow went down the mountains and covered the entire course which to try and technical descent on ex on extremely steep trail runs is hard enough covering everything with a blanket of white 
where you a can't see obstructions like rocks and roots and stuff like that but then also add the slick factor it's scary it's dangerous so i just you know struggle on through and i kind of take my time and i'm just constantly reminding myself it's going to be a long 30 hours 30 hours was the goal mm -hmm. that was the goal that i had so i'm going back and forth a little bit um with with one or two other runners and we finished the first lap and i feel pretty good and i put down a really fast time like, like six hours and 15 minutes for a marathon mm -hmm. keep in mind about three or four weeks beforehand i ran a sub 450k Mm -hmm. on the, the cement mountain bridge series so a six hour marathon is <laughs> feeling good about that yeah yeah it kind of tells you what kind of course it was yeah i go out in the second loop and the second loop you know it, it, i feel a little flat but i'm still feeling pretty good and at this point i'm like strong in the lead i haven't seen anybody for the entire second loop i've been alone mm -hmm. so i get back to camp after the second loop and we're on the third loop, that night loop, that night loop that really scared me. And I stop and I, I throw on a second pair of pants. I throw on a second jacket, two hats, two gloves. Like I'm, I'm like that little kid in a Christmas story yeah. that can't close his arms because he's yeah. wearing so many things. Mm -hmm. And I go out and amazingly, I feel like I nailed it. Right. So I'm, I'm going through the whole third loop. It starts at night. It finishes at night. There's no daylight for the entire third loop. And it's cold. It's the, I mean, it was cold from the start. I I had spent every minute of this entire race just thinking, I'm cold, I'm shivering. And at this point, I'm about 20, 22 hours into the race of just constantly feeling cold. And at, shortly after I started the third loop, all of my water bottles started to freeze. So... Like through? Yeah, like... Freeze through? Yeah, so I, I'm basically carrying ice around and at this point i can't drink and when you can't drink you can't eat so halfway through the race i basically stop drinking and eating and i have to go another uh 56 miles with only drinking water at the two aid stations that exist and eating almost nothing so it's in you know it's a it's severe dehydration severe malnutrition through the third lap and you're already bad enough after 56 miles of mountain running. Let's let's toss that on. And I finished the third lap, and it's still dark out. It's about 4 o'clock in the morning. And this part of the story nobody's heard about. And I'm really hoping my wife doesn't hear this because she's going to be really mad at me. Um, but I feel like if I tell people about the Wild Oak Trail, I can't leave this part out because it's the real part of the race. So 4 o'clock in the morning, the mentality is... Two more hours, the sun's going to be up. Sun up for ultra runners is like this rebirth. It always is. Every single time I've run um, ultra marathons and the sun comes up, you, you feel good. You feel warm. That vitamin D hits you. We had talked about this in the, in the last episode, how like, you know, your world is so small in night running. It's just what your light points to. And that's all you can see. And that's all what your world is, is that tiny little beam of light. And then as the sun comes up, your world expands gradually. And it just feels so good. And that's what drives me to start that fourth lap. Like the sun's going to come up, I'm going to get warm again. And because the third loop, I felt really cold. And I just, it's almost indescribable how 
feeling that cold for that long just eats at you. And I start that fourth loop and it's seven miles of just straight climbing up and then a three mile descent before you hit the first aid station. The aid stations have fires. Mm -hmm. So that's like your, that's your carrot. So I get about five miles up this climb and the sun had come up about half an hour beforehand. And I'm thinking I should be getting warm. I should be getting warm. And suddenly I realized that my pinky finger and my ring finger, they weren't cold. They weren't numb. They were actually in pain. And I couldn't feel anything in both of my hands. And what had turned out, I realized this in retrospect, but it had been cold. It had been snowing. And every, so everything gets wet and everything gets cold, but the wind hadn't picked up. At around four o'clock in the morning, the wind picked up and it started blowing that wet and that cold through everything that I had. And suddenly now my hands are about one step away from frostbite. Mm. And I'm in that classic hiker's dilemma. I'm six miles away from help in both directions. I guess I keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I get to the top of this climb and when you hit the top of the mountain, the wind's really bad. You're facing like 30 mile per hour winds. It's probably like eight degrees out. It's snowing. And this this is a horrible experience, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Like <laughs> it just keeps getting worse. Yep. And going up the mountain, right? You know, like you can keep your your heart rate going and your 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 body temperature up just by power hiking, right? Because you're you're for you're you're carrying your body weight up thousands of feet. So when you hit the descent, the only way to keep your body temperature up is to run. But I've got 80 miles on my legs. I've got, you know, 25,000 feet of elevation gain. I'm, I'm freezing cold and I have to run. Because it, not only is it like a comfort thing at this point, like if I don't keep my body temperature up, I could lose a finger. So yes. I'm hitting this descent. I, I know I have three miles. And that was the hardest three miles I have ever had to try and run because everything in my body is screaming, stop. Like my, my, my chest is, is hurting. My legs are destroyed. I, I'm dehydrated. I'm malnourished. Everything in my body is just screaming. And I have this little voice in my head that just goes, you have to keep moving. You have to keep running. You have to keep going. And there's this little section at the bottom of that hill where there's a sign, turn left at the sign, the, the, the trail forks. And the last three times I had run that little section, it felt like it was like an eighth of a mile. And then you hit this water crossing, you get to the water crossing, you go up and then there's the aid station. I hit that sign and that little like eighth of a mile segment felt like it took like half an hour. Mm -hmm. I, and then I finally hit the water crossing and it hits me if I screw up this water crossing, if I don't keep myself dry, very, very bad things are going to happen because mm -hmm. the water is freezing cold. I am not in a good place right now. And if I screw this up, because my body's not able to like just jump across the rocks and feel good, this could go very badly. Dude, this is a near-death <laughs> experience story. Yeah. <laughs> so... I just kind of, I stop for a second, I take a deep breath, and I just take it one step at a time. 
and I somehow make it across that water crossing. And here's the kicker, right? There's no signage. There's nothing to tell you where you go. At the water crossing, you have to turn left, you have to turn right. At this point, I'm so mentally depleted, I can't remember which way I have to go. I'm about a quarter mile away from an aid station, from a fire, from warmth, from water, from food, and I don't know where to go. <clears throat> and I almost have a panic attack. And like I just freeze. And I'm just like, and it just dawns on me, turn left. I don't know why, but I just turn left and I follow the trail up and I can see the fire and it's just there. <laughs> and apparently, I, I don't quite remember this too much, but I was told later that I basically came like falling into the aid station, just repeatedly saying, I, I need warmth. I need warmth. I'm so cold. I need warmth. I'm, I'm so cold. I'm, I'm, and I'm just mumbling. <laughs> and I literally throw my hands in the fire and I'm wearing two pairs of gloves, but just this steam just flumes all because my gloves are so saturated with freezing cold water. That's why they're so cold. And it just like plumes off of me. And the guy literally pulls my hands out of the fire. Like you're going to burn yourself. <laughs> and, and they sit me down and I'm just sitting there just silent. And they get me some like warm chicken broth and try and get some food and water in me and I'm sitting there for five minutes and after five minutes it was like warmth just flowed through me mm -hmm. and I started I'm like okay I feel okay and apparently I just silently put my 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 vest pack back on and just went back out I <laughs> uh, see y'all later but that that warmth feeling that like that rejuvenation of the sun coming up on the next climb that hit me and I was like a whole new person when that sun finally hit me and you know, the temperature raised five or six degrees, whatever I needed it to raise, like came up and quite literally there, there's a, they do a, a one lap version of the race too, that they host alongside with the hundred miler. And there's, there's a bunch of guys who run the, the one lap version who are pretty quick. And one guy caught me and I'm literally having a conversation with him like after I feel good and just explaining to him like this is the course this is what you need to watch out for watch for this turn watch for that turn because I've run a whole bunch of these laps by now and he said afterwards that like yeah dude seemed perfectly fine <laughs> so it just that little bit and I was you know completely rejuvenated like a whole new person mm -hmm. just after that little bit that's like that like produced some anxiety in me Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I don't tell people that story. <laughs> That's why oh, my wife's going to kill me. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to let you attempt again. Yeah, honey, I'm not signed up for that race this year. It's already full. Don't worry. <laughs> no, okay. Okay, I'm not so, going to share this with her. I hope she doesn't find it. <laughs> so that's that's wild. She she's uh, she does. Uh, I think she follows Forerunners podcast. Yeah, she so <laughs> you might see. Um, I'll put a note in. I'll be like, "Don't Bailey, yeah. do not listen." <laughs> um, so one interesting thing that helped a lot of runners during the pandemic was the great race across Tennessee virtual mm -hmm. you know, you got a lot of people a lot of people kept them chipping away at the miles yep. uh, when there was no races yeah exactly but there was an actual like physical, physical race, across race across Tennessee, Tennessee. <laughs> there are uh, two called, actually there are yeah there's two but you signed up for one yep. called heart of the south yep and that was I think that's your most recent 
yep. uh, race, right? Yep. Um, what month was that? So that was June. June. Yep. Okay, so it was in the summer, which probably plays a role in, in your story. But tell us a little bit about how uh, the heart of the South went, because you went to physically run across Tennessee. Yep. Well, let me <laughs> let me preface this a little bit with how training went before Heart of the South. When COVID hit, um, my wife interacts with a lot of people at work, right? So she was a high risk at the time um, of of catching COVID. So we both kind of did the personal responsible thing. We're like, we're going to self isolate. And one of the things that I do, I have my L four vertebrae. I actually have a birth defect on. So my back is constantly trying to get out of alignment because I have basically a, a jacked up vertebrae. Mm-hmm. And I go see a chiropractor weekly to essentially straighten me back out. So when COVID hit and we self-isolated, I didn't want to go see him and risk putting him in in danger right? mm-hmm. because she interacts with tens upon tens of people, which is, you know, that's a, that was a very high risk vector. And I obviously interact with my wife a lot. So we kind of self-isolated. So when I didn't see my chiropractor for like two months straight, my back had grown out of alignment. And again, learning from mistakes, I kept trying to train. And I kept trying to train hard because I really wanted to win Heart of the South. So I'm throwing down lots and lots and lots of miles. And one night, my back just, it felt really funny. And I did the smart thing. I I stopped running. I walked back. I woke up the next morning and I couldn't get out of bed. And this is about four weeks before Heart of the South. Which is, by the way, a 340-mile race. Yes, 340-mile race. So I'm getting ready to start a 340-mile race in four weeks, and I can't walk 10 feet to the couch. Not a good place to be. (laughs) Mm. Luckily, um, my wife's work had managed to change things up a little bit, her risk factor reduced, so we were able to no longer self-isolate. I went to our friends over to, at Direct Performance, and I, and I went to the, my chiropractor like basically like five days a week between the two of them. And somehow they managed to get me from unable to leave the bed to running some semblance of miles in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. which was a miracle in my mind. Yeah. Normally, if this were the case for any other race, I would have just dropped out and I would have been like, I'm, I'm physically not capable of doing this, but I love the premise for this race. So a little bit about the premise of this race. So there's another one called the last annual ball state where they race across Tennessee and there's, it's about 500 kilometers and it's an extremely well-documented route. They run the same route every single year. So people know, you know, where they can stop for food, where they can stop to sleep, mm-hmm. all of those things. Part of the South, Lazarus Lake, the guy from the Barkley Marathons, he he runs the last annual Ball State. He, when Ball State sold out super quickly, he's like, I'm going to run another race similar to Ball State, but I'm going to make it harder. Mm-hmm. So the course, none of you are going to know what the course is. It's just going to be somewhere in Tennessee. <laughs> And it's going to be somewhere around 500 kilometers. Mm. So we meet at the finish line. It's the only part that you know. You know the finish line. And you drive to Memphis, Tennessee. And you cross the border over on the other side of Tennessee. And then at 8 p.m. the night before the race, 
they release the GPX files for where you're going to run. Mm. So that's how you find out the course is 12 hours before the race starts. And you probably want to sleep during those 12 hours too. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, you're going into this blind. You're essentially going into this blind, which is fun. Um, I love that premise. And the, the problem is when, when COVID hit, everybody was dropping out and they were struggling to run the race. They, they just didn't have the people. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to run it regardless. I'm probably, I went into it thinking I'm probably going to DNF it. Mm -hmm. Probably not going to finish. But one thing I, I really want people to take away from this is that sometimes the DNF is the best story. Because Heart of the South, man, it's some of the best stories I have ever. I, I had so much fun telling people about that race afterwards because it's just so much fun and cool and interesting stuff. Right, so I go into the race, and I think the previous month I'd run like 30 miles total for the month. Mm -hmm. it's not going to go well <laughs> it's going to go terribly we we all meet up we get in the van you know we all get in the bus we do the hotel thing the night before and we start and the first 24 hours it's it's a bit of a suffer fest it's in the 90s there's zero cloud cover and the vast majority of the race up until that point was on i-64 which is a highway and you really don't realize this, but most highways have like 20 feet of clearance between the highway and the trees. So there is zero shade on the entire course mm -hmm. where it's 95 degrees and like 90% humidity. So it was just heat suffering. So you go through the first day, man, and you're, you're burnt. You're, you're sun poisoned. You're, you're hot. You're, you're just, you're struggling. And the first fun happened that first night. So I'm, weird way to start a story. I'm sitting in front of an insane asylum, working on my feet a little bit. <laughs> I've got like 80 miles on my feet. So, you know, I got one or two like little things I need to work on here or there. Just, you know, popping blisters and, and covering things up and stuff like that. And one of the guys who I'd gotten to know really well passed me. And I'm kind of laying in the grass for like 20 minutes, just taking a quick breather. And... I get up and, and start running the route behind him. And this police car just comes screaming up. And and he stops and he goes, do you see a dead body on the road? What? <laughs> it was me. <laughs> because I'm laying down on the ground in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, not thinking, hey, that's probably a dead body. <laughs> and I had to explain to him, no, that was probably me. And some nice passerbyer <laughs> called funny. into the cops. Hey, I saw a body land on the side of the road. Fun fact, not the first time that happened to me, in that, or not the last time that would happen to me in that race. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it gets better. So I get through the second day. Second day is just as hot as the first. It's, it's absolutely miserable. Um, and I remember I get into this town... And you kind of learn to like, because this is in the middle of COVID too, so there's nothing open. So you're just hoping that there's a gas station open. You know, Walmarts are closed. Mm -hmm. Most stores are closed. Very little things are open past 10 p.m. So like when you hit the night portion of the run, you might go 30 miles without seeing anything. Gosh. Yeah. Um, so I entered this town and I hit this gas station. It's, it's got to be the last gas station town. So I stop and I, you know, I load up all my stuff, get a bunch of food, get, and 
I, I actually went in with another guy and I told him to keep on going. And I sit down next to the gas station and I'm pouring some Gatorade into my little soft flask there. And at some point I fell asleep doing that. And the Gatorade had attracted ants. So I'm passed out at two o'clock in the morning inside of this gas station, itching myself nonstop. And I'm probably look like I'm extremely disheveled and I smell terrible. So what does the gas station attendant do? Yeah, there's a there's a you know a junkie on the side of my oh, <laughs> gas station who's passed out. So I wake up to just like cop cars just flying into the parking lot, oh, and the cop goes, "Buddy, you want anything?" And, and I'm like, "No, I'm I'm, I'm running a race," <laughs> which is the craziest thing to say to somebody. Oh my gosh, dude! So. And, you know, I, I, you know, I had to talk to the cops and, and, you know, and explain to them the situation. And they're like, you know, they kind of give me the side. I like, okay. And then I just, they let me go. And I just run out of town down, down this road. Oh my gosh, dude. You almost get, you get arrested. Dude. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, actually in similar races, there are a couple people who have been picked up. Gosh. Yeah. There, it specifically says in the rules that you're not allowed to step into a vehicle unless a cop puts you there. Then it's excusable. <laughs> it's it's oh happened enough God. where they write it into the rules. Holy crap. <laughs> so, and and this wouldn't be uh, an interview with, a, with an ultra runner if it didn't have a poo story. So here's my poo story. <laughs> so on the second day, um, yeah, my, my hip had started tightening up. And you could kind of read writing on the wall. I'm not even halfway through this race. My injuries already coming back to hit me. Like, it's not going to go well. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, like the, unless there's some kind of miracle, it's not going to happen. And I stop at this, um, I, I can't, it's a Dollar Tree or a Dollar General, one of those stores. And I sit in the bathroom and I just have like a 20 minute pity party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sitting there being super down, like, oh, like, I, I did all this. I'm not going to get the finish. Like, this stinks. And I get up, and I look in the toilet, and my poop is green. Because <laughs> I've been drinking so much purple Gatorade, apparently it turns your poop green. Oh, yeah. And in the mental state I was in, that was, like, the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, this epiphany came to me. Like, you know what? I might not finish this race. I'm definitely not going to win it. Um, but this is going to be one of the most hilarious things I get to tell people. And I, it's, it is 100% worth it now. <laughs> oh gosh. It, the green poo made this two day suffer fest a hundred percent worth it. <laughs> I'm surprised ha- about how committed to, uh, the purple Gatorade you were. Oh yeah. Is that your, that's oh. my go-to flavor. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Gotcha. I'm a, you know what I've liked lately? The white cherry. Cause it doesn't look like it should taste like cherry because it's white. Yeah. But it's delicious. I'll have to go to try. Yeah, it's yep. good. I don't know what color it turns your poop. <laughs> so, you got to drink nothing but that for two days straight. Man. I put <laughs> this on. I put this on my Instagram story, but yesterday I went on the side. Nobody was around. I went on the side of the trail to take take a pee, and uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of my pee, mm-hmm. somebody runs up. <laughs> And it's a woman. Yep. And I see that's a woman, so I like pull my pants up real quick. But apparently, I hadn't finished peeing, and I'm pretty sure I peed myself some. <laughs> so, but later on that day, I, is 
let me ask you this. Is it trail etiquette if you have to have an emergency poop? It, wouldn't it be trail etiquette to go off the trail a oh, little bit? Yeah, yeah, you go off the trail a little bit. So I'm sitting here on Cape Henry Trail running, and this is after my whole pee incident. And I get ready to turn on White Hill Lake. And right on the edge of the trail, like where somebody could step, some dude, maybe he's a listener, <laughs> had dropped trowel like on the on the trail. On the trail. <laughs> And was trying to poop and saw me real quick and, and pulled his pants up. And I was like, that makes me feel a whole lot better about my pee story yep. because, like, I at least went off the trail some. But yep. it, it, it's trail etiquette, guys. If you have to poo in the forest, go off the trail some, dude. Uh, and and here's, a, here's a little trick that uh, ultra runners, that ultra runners love dog poop bags. To pick up after yourself. Oh. Leave no trace. Leave yep. no trace. That's funny. So one thing that happens, you got like 134 miles into that race, right? Yeah, I got 134. You know that's like nothing to sneeze at. Like It's like <laughs> yeah. something, like when I saw that you had said you DNF'd with 134 miles, I was like, uh, you should still be proud because yeah. like not many people can run that far. <laughs> so, but uh, that's... That's a funny thing about ultra running is I see D, uh, I see people DNF all the time, but like you should still be proud oh, that yeah. you towed the line and like chipped away that many miles. Yeah. You know? So well, and I mean, one thing that race really taught me it's not about the finish, like it's it's about experiencing it, mm-hmm. and and the finish is part of the experience. But you can have crazy awesome experiences and not finish a race or not even be in a race, just be on an adventure run, mm-hmm. and you can experience some of the coolest, neatest things. So, uh, let's move into adventure running for a second because, uh, you don't just go run ultra races. You go to like destinations and enjoy nature. What what are some of the places that you've run and what are some of the beautiful places that you've run that didn't have to do with a race? Just going, going and running. So the first two, I, I love the West. I love the West. Uh, California was the first time I ever got to experience climbing a 14er. So the picture you posted of me, yeah, that's at 14,000 feet on top of Mount Langley, which is, it's a whole new experience just being up that high, being that alone, and just seeing for miles everywhere. And you know, one of the things I, I never really thought about until I started getting into ultra running was how I was going to get to experience things like that because of ultra running mm-hmm. you know when i i've gone up to the pacific northwest a couple of times up in washington and and uh jill can kind of attest to this because she's she's actually given me a couple of the routes that i run mm-hmm. uh, there are some places out there where it's just you're you're alone and you, you work to get to the top of this mountain and the view is just astronomical yeah, yeah and there's some there's some pictures on my my Instagram where like the pictures don't even do it justice. Just standing there in awe at what you're seeing is mind blowing. Yeah, it's 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 hard to describe. But like one of the best things, I, I got a little story about Hawaii, where being like really training and ultra running can sometimes pay off in ways that you wouldn't like expect. So. Uh, if anybody's ever been to uh, Waikiki in Hawaii, there's a crater right next to Waikiki, and it's this big park. And for a few months out of the year, if you time it right, 
you can see the sunrise up over the mountains and over Waikiki from that crater. And here's the thing. Right, I just kind of decided to do it on a whim. And I show up at like 5.30 in the morning at the, the gate to this park. And the gate opens up, but only to runners. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's me and like five or six locals. And then there's just this line of buses behind us full with full of tourists. And they open the gate to runners at 5.30. They open the gate to buses at 6. So, you know, they give us a chance to kind of get in and get ahead of the, the tourist buses. So we get in, and me and a bunch of these locals, we just kind of hang out. We, you know, we run to the top. And I get to the top, and they're like, you definitely want to stay here. This is the point to be. And we hang out for 20 minutes, and it was the most beautiful sunrise I had ever seen over a city landscape in my entire life. And it's just me and five other people just kind of hanging out on top of this um, like lookout point. Mm-hmm. And the five or six of us get to, get to kind of share in this experience. And then we all run back down. And as we're running down, you're passing or you're going in the opposite direction of hundreds of people going up who just missed that. Mm-hmm. They're never going to get to experience it because they just took the bus in and are going to walk up after the fact. And the idea of missing that just really threw me. And I mean, this is just something I did before work one day. Yeah. And there's there's a whole bunch of those, like being able to go out after work, and ex- especially in Hawaii, because one of the really unique things about Hawaii is that you can go, you can be in the extremes of the mountains, you can be in the jungle, you can be in the suburbs and in the city all within the same 20 miles. So you can go out for a 20 mile run and experience all of that. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you get in pretty good shape, you can just go for a 20 mile run. Mm-hmm. And that's just your Tuesday now. And yeah. for a lot of people, when you read online, that's like the experience they have of the entire trip. And for you, that's Tuesday. Yeah. Right. It's, that's an awesome, like just, how much of that you get to like internalize and take in just feels great. Yeah. Does, um, when you see a breathtaking view like that, does it, does it make you emotional or is it something you like can keep in your heart or do you try to capture on a pig, uh, photograph or what, what happens? You try and capture it, but pictures never do it justice. Yeah. And it's not even the great views either. Sometimes I've experienced this in, probably every single race that I've run. And I experienced it for the first time in that 50K. But you, a lot of times I'll be out there and I'll just hit a random point of euphoria. Yeah. Where I'm by myself in the middle of the woods and there's nothingness. It's mm-hmm. just pristine and transcendent. And, you know, the light comes in through the trees or something and you just feel this sense of at peace that you don't feel anywhere else at any other time. Yeah. And I've experienced it in the Pacific Northwest, in Hawaii, in California, here in Virginia, countless times. Yeah. And it's it's just getting out there and pushing your body to the point where it can be open to that experience. Yeah, since I, I really uh, identify with that because usually I just run in Portsmouth, just the same stuff over and over again. But since I've been training for the 50K, I've been trying to go do trails way more often. And just in the last, like, four months, maybe, I've seen way better views than I have ever seen in Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. I mean, Portsmouth's beautiful down by the water, especially during Christmas time when 
the lights light up on in Norfolk, mm-hmm. and just you can see the uh, the buildings reflect off the water in, at the nighttime. It's really pretty. But I've seen a lot of what you're describing, especially here in Virginia, yeah. like the sun shining through the trees and the fog. Yeah, like I've seen a lot of that lately. Um, let's talk about uh, just a, just a handful of of things more. What do you eat during your ultra run? Do you have it down to a science, or do you do different things? So I I prescribe to the 300 calorie per hour mentality. So you try and take in 300 calories every hour as long as you can. Um, there's a whole bunch of science behind it that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically from the, the way that I understand it is that your body can only really um, process 300 calories an hour. It can store more than that. You know, you can, you can, it's basically like a funnel mm-hmm. that's 300 calories. You can put a whole bunch more on top, but it's only going to go down 300 calories at a time. And um, so you, you kind of try and maintain that consistency and keep food on top. Um I'm, I'm, let me preface this too. I, I run for Honey Stinger, so uh, but I run for Honey Stinger because I really like their products, and the fact that they're they're very diversified. Right, it's not just one thing. They have chews and goos and and waffles and a whole bunch of other stuff. Which when you're doing a really long ultra, being able to kind of switch it up because you can get tired of goos very quickly, you can get tired of chews very quickly. But if you can switch it up, it kind of feels better. Mm-hmm. But Every single person is different. Some people, I know you can't handle um, goos. Some people can't handle chews. Some people just have to go off of real food, sandwiches, you know, bread, tortilla, whatever. Mm-hmm. Every person is going to be different. So the real key is when you go out for those long runs, practice it. Mm-hmm. You know, eat like you race. So, you know, toss down a couple calories every hour or so just so your body can get used to processing that kind of food. And then when you get to race day, don't throw any curveballs at it. Gotcha. Nice. Um, do you have ultra running heroes? I, I have a, I have a few that I hold on a pedestal, but I, I'm interested to hear yours. Um, if you have, I love Gary Robinson. Gary Robinson is probably the creme de la creme. The the guy is salt of the where earth. dreams go to die. Yeah, where dreams go to die. Man, that's Just, heartbreaking. Yeah, that, if you haven't watched the documentary where dreams go to die about Gary Robbins, uh, at the Barclays Marathon, go look it up. Where dreams go to die. It's amazing. Yeah, um, he puts in some insane workouts, and he brings so much to the ultra running community with what he's doing in the Pacific Northwest that it's. It's awesome. He's he contributes in every way humanly possible, and then still manages to run a pro career, which to mm-hmm. me is just mind-boggling that you can juggle all of those things. And then there's there's a whole bunch of other people too. I mean, you know, Jim Walmsley puts up some just insane like times. Gazelle. He's yeah. like a deer running through the forest. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, Courtney DeWalter is probably the most mentally strong athlete I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, Camille Heron, who's also my coach, uh, she just throws down insanely solid miles. She just ran the JFK this weekend and 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 blew it out of the water. Yes, nice. What are some of your goals? Like, I know you probably have some lofty goals. What are some <laughs> of them? Are I need to know this? Is Barclays Marathon on your? Are there Barclays Marathons on your? 
radar? That's look. I would love to. <laughs> it seems like, from the stories I've heard today, it seems like up your alley, possibly. Well, it, yeah, I'm in a bit of a transition right now. So Barkley is definitely still like, yeah. You know, if 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 I got accepted, I would accept it in a heartbeat. I would. I would. <laughs> Do you know? I how, would move to Tennessee. Have you figured out how to apply yet? I can't say that. Right, real, real quick, I, I'll about the Barclays, I'll give a piece of advice from John Kelly that John Kelly gives everyone. If you're trying to figure out how to get into the Barclay Marathons, you're wasting your time. Not because it's impossible, but because the more you research about that race, the it's a rabbit hole, right? Like you just keep going down and down. There's more stuff you have to learn and learn. And by the time you're like a third of the way through figuring out what it actually is in that race you'll accidentally figure out how to get into it. So don't bother researching how to apply to the Barkley. It's a waste of time. You'll accidentally figure it out long before you actually figure out how to run that race. That that's that's a that's a true like John Kelly. Like that's what he has on his website when people ask him. Yeah. So so let's hear some goals, dude, if you're willing to share them. So <laughs> I'm probably going to regret this. Um I, I pivoted. I was supposed to run the Wild Oak Trail 200. I was going to try and be the first person to finish that race. Uh, my wife, after hearing this story, after me telling the 100-mile story, is probably happy that I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I don't, even, I don't even want you to. Yeah, uh, that I'm not That I'm not going to do it now. But um, I pivoted. I, I think, man, running those loops, it kind of got into me. And I've had... And it probably also stems from my speed skating days. I always dreamed about wearing red, white, and blue. And there's a 24-hour Team USA, and there's qualifications every two years. And I, that's the goal right now. That's why I picked up Camille Heron as a coach. She's the world champion in that in that distance, uh, and the world record holder for for women. She's a beast in the 24-hour distance. Dang. So, the hope is not this year or not even 2021, but hopefully 2022. Like that's a lofty goal where you have to put years of work into it. But you're starting to execute your plan. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So the, and basically what the funny thing is, is what that looks like. It's kind of like a Olympic trial qualifying. It's, it's boiled down to one number. Uh, Olympic trials, I think is a two thirty marathon gets you an invite and mm-hmm. then <clears throat> top, what is it? Three or four get the, get the nod. Mm-hmm. And, Ultra marathon and 24-hour races, 145 gets you an invite, so 145 miles in 24 hours. That's a lot, but it's all on a track, right? Yeah, it's all – well, it, technically, you can run it on whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, it's just got to be a certified race and a sanctioned – or a sanctioned race and a certified course. Um, but in reality, it's looking like 160 miles will be what gets you the nod. So 160 miles. If you imagine running a four-hour marathon – Back to back to back to back to back to back. That's what it is. So what you're saying is that for the next two or three years, your Strava is going to get even crazier. It's going to get really long. <laughs> to to yeah. So um, an, another I I didn't mention him as as one of my idols, but he definitely is. Uh, Zach Bitter, who holds the hundred mile record for trail, road, treadmill. Uh, he's about to finish transitioning to the 24-hour distance, and he's putting down like 200-mile weeks right now. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah, he's a beast. 
Well, let's wrap this up episode up with some of your faves, dude. What's your favorite route to run? This this should be interesting because you run it you run an interesting route. <laughs> uh, at the the Wild Oak Trail single loop, twenty eight miles, eight thousand feet of elevation gain. It's just enough to destroy you. Yeah, and just run it four times. <laughs> yeah. But the single loop the single loop is my favorite like single route to run. Here is a uh, a fun fact about you. Um before we started Four Runners Podcast, I did a, a really big fat giveaway. I think it was like a hundred fifty dollar gift card to run it, etc. Mm-hmm. And you were the winner. Yep. Yeah, man. And I think just a, a couple weeks after you got it, you posted that uh, you got a, a pair of shoes. And I think – I could be wrong, but I think these are your go-tos. So what's your favorite shoe? Uh, so – Uh-oh. Has it changed? N- no. It, well, it hasn't changed for the trip. So I bought oh, okay, I bought a okay. pair of Speedgo uh, 4s, I think, with the with – the, um, uh, with the gift card you gave me. Yeah. And by the way, those Speedgoat 4s won me the Wild Oak Trail. For so, real? Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're basically my race sponsor. For, Dang, for nice, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. The win on the Wild Oak Trail brought to you by Four Runners Podcast. How did your does, – does it protect your feet from getting wet? The, the uh, those aren't Gore-Tex, but there's Gore-Tex versions. Yeah, I've um, seen that. Yeah. I didn't know if you had those. But recently on the road, uh, and not too many people know this, I actually transitioned to Nike. So I've been wearing Pegasus for on the road for the last couple of months, and I like them. Yeah, I like them I've been wearing Pegasus too. I've put yep. down a couple hundred miles in mine. Yep. And I just did. I just did it too. So that's that's interesting. So two categories: trail is speed goat, yep. road is the Pegasus. And, and let me also anybody who's looking for shoes, there is no one size fits all. There's no like this is the perfect thing for everybody, like. I think I had to go through like seven or eight different pairs of road shoes before I found one that I really, really liked. Mm-hmm. And I think I went through two or three pairs of trail shoes before I found speed goats that I really, really liked. So the, the best thing I can say is go to your local running store and try them on because they're all going to have different shapes and sizes and every single runner is going to have different needs and wants. And even as you get as you become a better runner, as your stride changes, as your gait changes, you know, when your running style changes, your shoe preferences might change as well. So even then, you might want to be looking yeah. at different shoes. Yeah. What's your favorite race? Oh, I mean, the Wild Oak Trail 100 is going to always have it's a gonna be special the, place yeah. in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We need to know this because I don't know if I know anybody who runs uphill or downhill as much as you do. <laughs> Possibly Jill. Um, there might be a couple others that I haven't met yet, but do you prefer uphill or downhill? For the longest time, it was uphill. And then I spent a lot of time training the downhill and learning how to properly run downhill, which is a, it's not something you can just pick up. It's, that's something that you just have to practice and learn and practice and learn. And once you get good at it, it's a ton of fun. (laughs) We... Okay, so just before you came over, we went into we got sucked into a, a rabbit hole on YouTube. My whole family did. Yeah. Have you heard of cheese rolling? Yes. There was a there's a Netflix documentary. I know. On That's it right why now. we saw it. Yeah. <laughs> so we went and saw clips of yep. like epic wipeouts. Is that what you look like going downhill? 
Just Dude, rolling. Yeah, if y'all don't know what cheese rolling is, go look it up on YouTube and enjoy yourself for a little bit. But there is a Netflix documentary. I, I think it's called like Champions or something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, we but, are the champions. It's the name yeah. of that. So that's so you're a downhill guy. I, I think like when I am doing some kind of elevation, I just have fun running downhill. Like yeah. I don't have fun running uphill, but running downhill, there's something it's for me, it's might be my favorite part of running. Yep. Like just trying to bomb. Just bomb it. it. Yeah. Just dude. bomb it. Yeah. Especially if there's no roots or something. Mm-hmm. Like I think at Nolan Trail, you can bomb a lot of little downhills. Um, at First Landing State Park, it's a little bit it's a little bit dangerous. But I know that that's like not technical at all. So it must get a little hairy going down a rocky. Oh yeah. Uh, rocky technical. So one thing when I ran with with Jill recently, she was like. For the technical stuff, you run, you use super small steps yep. so that you don't break yourself in yep. half. So, well, man, I think that telling some of these stories, you might have just solidified legend status, dude. <laughs> or, or just learn from mistake status. <laughs> man, these people, just because I made mistakes doesn't mean I'm a legend. It these people need mistakes. to follow you, dude. They, Jason Hallenbeck on Strava. Um, Jason Ultraman, there's no spaces on Instagram, no. right? Yeah. At Jason Ultraman, um, and you'll see this guy is an adventure seeker, a risk taker, uh, uh, apparently a death defier. <laughs> <laughs> and so. there might be some some big adventure runs coming in the next couple of weeks. So, like while this airs, I'm I might be able to pull off where I can download this episode at fourteen thousand feet. Oh, that might be the goal. We'll, we'll see if everything lines up, but that might be the goal where I download this episode of 14,000 feet. Nice. I'm having to type on my computer. So, But, well, I appreciate you. I appreciate your stories. I'm sure people will be inspired by this, and they'll learn some stuff from it about uh, ultra running. And if anybody has questions about ultra running, feel free to – I love helping people go through, like, how do I get started? Where do I go? Who do I talk to? What does a training regimen look like? I, I I can't, sadly with my job, like I don't have the consistency where I can like actually coach anybody, but I can like provide spot advice where people are looking for help. And I do that all the time with the, yeah. the small ultra running community yeah. we have here. And if you want to run at night and you need a buddy, this guy's your man. Oh yeah. So. And, and <laughs> one thing too, a lot of people like are worried that, oh, I'm not fast enough to run with you. Most of my 100 milers, I finish at like a 14-minute mile. I think most of you are probably within that. Yeah. So it's it's all good training miles for me. Like <laughs> nice. We could throw that in. Nice. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on here. I can't wait to air these things, man. Yep. All right. Well, if you were looking for inspiration to go be a little adventurous, I think you probably found it in this podcast with Jason. And when it comes to advice or going out on a run with Jason, he is not bluffing. He is, when he's in town, super available and loves to run with people. If you want to find him on Instagram, it's at Jason Ultraman. Also, unfortunately, we forgot to ask Jason's favorite color and his favorite movie, but maybe we'll turn that into a little Instagram quiz during this week. But for now, this is Danny, signing off. Godspeed. Godspeed.